so hey, so today is our final Sunday, uh, moving through this book, the second in our series, A Good and Beautiful Life, which um, of course has taken us through the Beatitudes and through the Sermon on the Mount, uh, as we've explored what life in God's kingdom is all about. And so one thing that should really be abundantly clear by now is that the nature of God's invitation to you and I isn't just about being intellectually convinced of certain truth claims. That's not what God's primarily interested in. But it's about, this invitation is about knowing God in an ever-deepening sense. Walking with Jesus through all of the ups and downs of life and being attentive to the voice and to the leading of the Holy Spirit, and not just like times in our lives where there's some big decision that we need to make or some climactic moment, but learning how to be attentive to the Spirit all the time in all the facets of our lives. So in short, God's invitation to you and I is to learn to live in His kingdom and under His reign day by day. That's the primary invitation God makes to you and to me. Come live in my kingdom. Learn how to live in my kingdom day by day. Jim Smith, the author of the book, he likens this invitation to like learning how to daily stoke a fire. And I want to read his account of how he understands his day from the perspective of learning to live in the kingdom of God day by day. Here's what he says in this chapter. In the morning, I try to set aside time, half an hour at least, for private prayer. He says, that's how I start the fire every day. Through adoration, thanksgiving, recollection, praise, and surrender, I interact with the God who sacrificed himself for me. Prayer is this interactive relationship with this God, and I surrender myself to his guidance and to his will. But then he says, that's not the end for me. Just like the fire in the fireplace, I need to stoke the fire throughout the day. And I do this by pausing for short times of prayer every hour or two, by reading the scriptures or spending a few moments reading a devotional book. He says, these are the logs that I add to keep the existing fire burning brightly. And then he says this, that in the evening before bed, I read maybe another Christian book. I spend a few moments in self-examination, going over my day with God in prayer. And then I fall asleep in his tranquil presence. Now catch this. He says, I don't do these things because I want God to love me and bless me, nor to avoid punishment or impress people with my piety. I, now, this is really, excuse me, striking to me. I do all of this to keep the fire burning. I do them because I'm spiritually weak. I can't maintain an effective and joyful Christian life without these activities. I also need weekly times of worship and fellowship and a host of other disciplines to nourish my soul. When I neglect these things, my soul atrophies. I simply know of no other way to be an apprentice of Jesus. Now, Amy used that language, and Jim uses it here at the end, and he says he finds his life as one of trying to be an apprentice of Jesus. Now, I actually want to ask you, what comes to mind when you hear the word apprentice? Like, you hear that word and think about what? Tra Did I hear training? 
Trades, yeah, you get apprenticed into a particular trade. What else? The sorcerer's apprentice, a knight, maybe. So I just want to capture that idea for us this morning. It's an idea, it's language that actually came to me a long time ago, and I've never been able to let it go. In fact, it would not be the slightest bit of an exaggeration for me to say to you that that language, that idea, radically transformed how I understand what it means to be a Christian, or how I understand the purpose of the church, how I understand my own, the nature of my vocational calling to ministry. And so I want to commend it to you and invite you to consider that this question, what would it mean for me to understand my identity as a Christian as being an apprentice of Jesus? I don't know if that's a brand new thought to you. It really was to me, I don't know, 15 or so years ago, that that's not what I understood. That's not how I understood what it meant to be a Christian. But just enliven your imaginations a little bit this morning if you're not already there and ask yourself, what would it mean for me to understand my identity as a Christian as one of being an apprentice of Jesus? So Smith goes on to suggest that there's two false narratives that threaten to sabotage this way of understanding the Christian life. The first is supposing that Christianity isn't ultimately about a relationship. It might be thought of or treated as a worldview or a set of beliefs or a social identity or something else. The point is that the centrality of cultivating an ongoing personal relationship with the risen Jesus isn't emphasized. Okay? So that's one of the false narratives that dominate the Christian landscape, is that, that there's a, a faithful way of understanding what it means to be a Christian that doesn't center on the idea of a relationship. It's false narrative number one. The second is supposing that Christianity is about keeping all the rules, that just give me like a set of criteria for what it means for me to be dutiful in this so that I can kind of like consider myself on good terms with God and what it means to be a Christian. I was thinking about that, and I was remembering back to a story um, of my final year of grad school, and a professor invited me to be a TA, a teaching assistant in his class for a year. And we were a couple weeks in, and one of the responsibilities that I had was grading assignments um, for students. And I had a student come to me who hadn't done very well on a couple assignments that she had turned in. And she said, listen, I have every intention in the world of pursuing a PhD and becoming a professor of theology. I can't do that unless I get straight A's. Tell me everything I need to do to get an A, to guarantee it. And so she wanted this kind of didactic list that she could check all the boxes and then just assume that she would get an A. And I was trying to explain to her, it doesn't quite work like that. Like, there's just certain skills and capacities that people have to perform well. I can't just flatly give you a list of things to do, and then you're all good. And there is a way in which sometimes we're inclined to think about Christianity that way. God, just give me a checklist, and I will knock it out. And Jim Smith says, that's a false narrative. That's a faulty way to understand what it means to be a Christian. He says this, 
neither of those narratives is right. The first sees the spiritual disciplines as unnecessary. The second sees them as mandatory, and they both miss the key element, and that's relationship. What truly matters is a relationship with Jesus, with being his apprentice. And that naturally entails engaging in practices that nurture the relationship, right? So you don't just have it, you actually have to do things that nurture that relationship, contra the first narrative. But the relationship is what's important, not the practices themselves, contra the second narrative. He says, spiritual exercises, spiritual practices are wise practices that develop and enhance our life with God. That's what they do. But they're not spiritual merit badges that determine how God feels about us. Apprentices of Jesus learn how to be with Jesus in order to become like Jesus. And that's done by learning how to abide in Him. So that's what we want to press into this morning. The notion that Christianity, God's invitation to us to living a good and beautiful life in his kingdom day by day is about cultivating an abiding relationship with Jesus. And so the passage that we're looking at to round out the series this morning is Matthew 7, 13 to 27. If you've got a Bible, feel free to turn there. Uh, the text will be on the screen. And the four different juxtapositions that Jesus uses to round out the Sermon on the Mount. Narrow and wide gates, true and false prophets, true and false disciples, wise and foolish builders. These four metaphors that he's using to kind of round this out. I'm going to look at each one briefly, and then what I want to do is see if we can discern the thread that runs through each of them, through all four. So Matthew 7, 13 to 27. Here's the first one, the narrow and the wide gates. Jesus says, enter through the narrow gate. For wide is the gate, and broad is the road that leads to destruction, and many enter through it. But small is the gate, and narrow the road that leads to life, and only a few find it. I am willing to bet that most of us will have an intuitive sense of what Jesus is talking about here. That most, if not all of us, have found ourselves at some sort of crossroads, in our lives, some opportunity, some sort of decision, and we had to decide, am I going to take the easy road or am I going to take the hard road? You can probably call those instances to mind as I'm talking. Now, of course, when you think about those things, in many instances, it's not that always in our lives that the easy road is incredibly wrong or always bad. It's just that often is the case that there would be some additional kind of reward or blessing if we were willing to choose the narrow way. And in a similar but much more ultimate sense, Jesus is telling his hearers the path that he's on, the path that he's inviting others to follow him along, is the one true path to the good and beautiful life. And that the broad road, which most people will travel, leads away from the good and beautiful life. He wants us to see that juxtaposition. Here's the next one, true and false prophets. Jesus says, watch out for false prophets. They come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ferocious wolves. By their fruit you will recognize them. Do people pick grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Likewise, every good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. 
A good tree can't bear bad fruit, and a bad tree cannot bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down, thrown into the fire. Thus, by their fruit, you will recognize them. Jesus is, in this passage, he's warning people against those who, despite their appearance and claims as spiritual guides, they lack the sort of fruit in their lives that testifies to their authenticity. Now, here's where it gets a little bit tricky, because, in fact, thorn bushes and thistles can produce berries and flowers that might draw us in. But Jesus is saying that we have to take a closer look because things aren't always what they appear, right? Can, we can amen that. We all know <laughs> things aren't always exactly what they appear. Now, friends, this, this might not be the kind of news that you follow, but for someone like me who's uh, been in Christian ministry for a long time, uh, there's certain conversations that um, I'm, I'm most aware of that are happening sort of in the scene. And whether you know it or not, there is a massive reckoning that's happening right now in various quarters of the church where people are realizing just how often, especially white, male, charismatic kinds of leaders abuse people and their positions of power. Like this is coming out like no other time. And there's a massive reckoning that's occurring in the church right now with respect to that issue. And what people are seeing up close and personal is that just because someone has a, what appears to be a successful ministry from the outside doesn't actually mean that the fruit of their ministry, when you get up really close to it, is what it first appears to be. So that one feels really acute to me as a Christian minister these days. Here's this next one, true and false disciples. Jesus goes on and he says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father who's in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? And in your name drive out demons? And in your name perform many miracles? Then I will tell them plainly, away from me. I never knew you. Away from me, you evil doers. I love that Jesus here cuts right to the heart of the matter. It's almost like he knows that at the most fundamental level, the question that our whole lives are usually based on is something like this. What does it mean for me to build a meaningful life in this world? Even if you've never directly asked yourself that question, you've asked yourself that question. All of the choices that we make, the way in which we see the world, the way in which we engage the world, comes from something, if not explicit, then intuitive, that we have in answering this question, what does it mean for me to lead, to build a meaningful life in this world? And it's actually a really good question. Like, if you've never actually asked yourself that question, you should. It's a really good question to ask. And I wonder, if you were to think back over the course of your life, or if you looked around now, what sort of answers to that question do you think that you've gleaned from others? 
I mean, just think about this as a mental exercise. Where you sit this morning, thinking back over your life or thinking about the influences that are in your life right now, what are the sort of answers that you think people, the world around us, gives us about what it looks like and means to build a meaningful life in this world? Marriage? Kids? Nice house? Good job? Financial security? Pursuing your dreams? Whatever makes you happy, try to be a good person. We could go on from there. Those are just, I think, some of the things that people might suggest. If you want to know how to build a meaningful life, focus on those things. But over against any other counsel or narrative, Jesus would have us believe that the one sure way to lead a meaningful life is to hear his words and put them into practice. That's what Jesus would have us believe. The other night, um, uh, I was invited to, uh, it was kind of a celebration debrief party for something that we had done in our neighborhood where we live. And I was having a conversation with um, the gentleman, he and his wife were hosting this. and I had never met him before. He was telling me a little bit about his life. He's 60 years old. At one point, he commented, somebody was asking him some questions about his plans for future business and things like that. And he's like, I have all the money I could ever want. Like, he actually said that. Like, I'm just done making money. I have all the money I could ever need. I have these successful businesses. I have a house in Florida and a house up at the lake and a house here in Canton. Then he kind of joked about how he and his wife, he has to ask his wife every day when they wake up in the morning, what day is it? Because like every day is like Saturday for them. <laughs> They're just like retired and no cares in the world. They don't even really think about it. And as he was talking, I just wondered, could we look at someone like that and say, not with haughtiness and not with condemnation, but with pure love, pure love, could we say, in terms of you having a truly meaningful life, all of that is a mist. It's a mist. And say that the only thing that will ever actually matter is whether or not you hear Jesus' words and put them into practice. I kind of jumped a bit, but here's where this comes from. In this last little section, Jesus says, therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house. Yet it didn't fall because it had its foundation on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like a foolish man who built his house on sand. And the rain came down and the streams rose and the winds blew and beat against that house and it fell with a great crash. You've heard me say before, like, Jesus is our Lord and Savior. Jesus is also, I think, that we're supposed to believe the smartest person who ever lived. And so I just wonder, do we take Jesus at his word when he says, 
If anyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And so I'm not saying when I'm talking to this gentleman that there's anything wrong with having more money than you know what to do with, or having three houses, or waking up every morning and wondering, what day is it? I can do whatever I want. I'm not saying there's anything like implicitly bad in that. But it was also very apparent to me that like in his mind, that was the pinnacle and the meaning of life. And I'm just thinking to myself, tomorrow. It could all be gone tomorrow. All of it. It could be washed away. And it was just a reminder to me that Jesus says what it means for you to have an actually, actually an ultimately meaningful life is to hear my words and to put them into practice. So I wonder if you see the thread here as we think about these three different, four different uh, juxtapositions that Jesus is making. A road that looks accessible and popular, but it leads to destruction. Prophets, teachers who have the appearance of authority and holiness, but whose lives don't produce good and lasting fruit. Disciples who can boast in their many deeds in the world, many, many, many good deeds, but who have no real relationship with the Creator behind it all. Or a house that looks amazing on the outside, but is not going to stand up to the real trials of life. The thread, friends, is the unparalleled importance of an ever-deepening relational connectedness to Jesus, who is the arbiter of everything that's truly good. There is nothing in this world that's good that Jesus does not name so. Jesus is the one who names that which is good. And so to be his apprentices in our ordinary, everyday lives is a decision to say, Jesus, whatever you think is good, I want to be about that. Teach me how to be about that. So here's where things fall down with the underwear dragon, right? It was really easy for the knight as an apprentice, like everybody knows an underwear dragon is a bad deal. Stay away from the underwear dragon. Nine times out of ten, the roads that we face in our lives are not going to come at you like an underwear dragon. (laughs) Never thought you'd hear all this talk about underwear dragon at church, did you? Jesus is saying it's hard to tell the good way from the bad way, right from wrong, faithfulness to unfaithfulness. A lot of times these things are masked and they're really hard to see. The only way you're actually going to know how to tell and where to walk and where to go is if you stay relationally connected to me. I'm the only one that can take you there. How will we have the wisdom and fortitude to see and walk through the narrow path? It's only by living as Jesus' apprentices. How will we be able to discern true teaching from false? Only by living as Jesus' apprentices. How is it that we will be welcomed into the presence of God? Only by living as Jesus' apprentices. How is it that our lives and our work find their truest and most enduring meaning? Broken record, only by living as Jesus' apprentices. This is how we walk out that path. I may have shared this before, and I definitely will share it again in the future because it's one of my favorite stories. 
Eight years ago, I was participating in a workshop on leadership and evangelism, this workshop. And one of the presenters, who was both a theology professor and a pastor, said this in his remarks. He said, you know, I find it fascinating that the church spends so much time and energy trying to make Christians in the hopes that a few might become disciples. When Jesus spent all of his time and energy trying to make disciples, trusting that this would make all of them want to be Christians. That moment stuck out to me for two reasons. First, because it's a stark reminder that there's a risen in American Christian culture, a false notion that one can be a Christian and not a disciple. It's completely false. The Bible knows absolutely nothing of that dichotomy. It's completely made up. And second, it revolutionizes how I think we are able to think about evangelism. It's kind of where I want to end, and just I hope hear me out on this point. That I believe his name was Keith. What Keith was saying, it moves us from a place of supposing that evangelism, when, I'm guessing when you hear evangelism, you think Billy Graham. That's kind of what I think. But it moves us, this idea moves us from a place of supposing that evangelism is either about trying to get people to believe certain things or to just join a church to a place of embracing evangelism as inviting people to become apprentices of Jesus who says, I want to show you what it means to look, sorry, what it means and looks like to lead a good and beautiful life. Just think for a moment. Can you name one person in your life who, if they were being honest, would say to you, good and beautiful life, hard pass. No thanks. Not interested in a good and beautiful life. I'm hoping not. (laughs) But here's the kicker for you and me. I'm wondering, can we extend that invitation? And when they say, yep, good and beautiful life, sign me up. That sounds amazing. So that's, in the next breath, could we say this? I'd love to help you learn how to become an apprentice of Jesus and live in the kingdom day by day. Now that doesn't have to mean that you're perfect or I'm perfect or that we have all the answers. That's not what it's about, right? I wasn't going to, like, go back to the the knight and the underwear dragon, right? And the little boy who's like, I just have to go be about this thing. I've made a decision to be an apprentice, and I'm probably going to fail, and I'm still learning, but I'm going to go about, and I'm going to do it. So it doesn't mean we have to be perfect or have all the right answers. It does mean that we have to be able to say, here is how I've been trying to hear the words of Jesus and put them into practice. That's what we have to be able to say. I'm doing my level best to hear Jesus and what he's saying and to try to put into practice what I'm hearing and what I'm learning. If you're not sure where to start with that, at the end of the chapter this week, there's a sample of how to spend a full day seeking to be aware of your life in God's kingdom. I really want to commend that practice to you. If you've never just woken up and said, I'm going to try to do, like Jim's little example, to stoke the fire throughout the day and learn how to live in the kingdom day by day, this would be a great exercise. All right, I'm going to close with these two questions, and these are just for us to reflect on, okay? Here's the first one. The first one is multiple questions. 
what's something about Jesus that's truly, that truly captivates me these days? Like, as you just bring Jesus to mind, what's something about his way of being that you go, that's kind of captivating to me. I look at that thing in Jesus's life, and that draws me in. And then ask this question, how will I seek to apprentice myself to him in the months and years ahead such that he might apprentice me into that way of life? Just ask yourself. So let me just, in real time, like, I look at Jesus and how unfazed he was by um, the way in which people were coming against him. And I, and I, I look at that and go, I would kind of like to be like that. And then ask myself and pray, God, how would you have me walk that out? How can I become someone like that? And I just want to suggest to you, like, this ought to be, like, baseline, fundamental, this is what it means for us to be a Christian, is we're always asking, what do I find compelling about Jesus? How am I learning to take on that way of life? And here's the second question. Who's someone in my life that I might have a conversation with about what constitutes a good and beautiful life? Can you just imagine yourself sitting down with a friend or a family member or a neighbor or a coworker with no, pre, no like prejudged agenda and just say, can we have a conversation? What do you think it means to lead a good and beautiful life? And just see where that conversation takes you. See what like comes up as you do that and try to answer in your own mind. What do I think it really means to lead a good and beautiful life? And do I think that, do I actually believe that Jesus is like, he's the sole determiner of that, that I wouldn't base my answers to that question on anything else other than what Jesus says, this is what it means to lead a good and beautiful life. I think these would be fascinating conversations for us to have with people. Okay, let me just commend those questions to you one last time. What's something about Jesus that truly captivates me these days? How will I seek to apprentice myself to him in the months and years ahead, such that he might lead me into that way of life. Who's one other person in my life that I might have a conversation with about what constitutes a good and beautiful life? Let me pray for us to those things this morning.